Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What could go right? in a world where we are so focused on what could go wrong. I'm Zachary Carabell, and for today's installment of What Could Go Right, I am speaking with Liz Ann Saunders, who's Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. She's also one of my favorite commentators, observers, analysts of markets, and has been for more than 15 years, at least in my experience. And her acumen about the markets is unparalleled. Her role at Schwab is to develop investment strategies and to help individual investors as well as advisors understand and navigate the market. She is a frequent commentator on every news and business program you can imagine, and she is turned to by journalists, economic analysts, and politicians for her insights. She's been at Schwab since 2000 after they acquired U.S. Trust, where Lizanne had been a managing director. And she was named one of Smart Money's Power 30, their list of the most influential people on Wall Street. She was named one of the 25 most powerful women in finance by American Banker and one of the top 50 women in wealth by Wealth Manager. She was appointed to serve on President George W. Bush's advisory panel on tax reform. And she has been one of Schwab's leading lights as well as Wall Street's leading lights. So I'm really looking forward to my conversation with Lizanne. So, Lizanne, you travel around a good bit and talk to a lot of people about what they feel about the world and the markets. So over the past months, what are clients and investors and people just trying to figure out the world? What do do they seem to feel? What are they anxious about? And what are you telling them? That is the world's biggest softball. So only, only in the context of what I've experienced over the last eight years would I say that in the last month, there is maybe a modicum of more positive flavor to questions and comments that I get, but but only in contrast to what has been just persistent and pervasive skepticism, pessimism, distrust, whatever adjective you want to use to describe the environment. And it's still the case, though, that, and I, I am on the road every week and I speak at uh, client events all over the place, um, most of the questions are maybe not quite Armageddon-like, but pretty close to it. They're, they're all some form of what worries you now? What's the next shoe to drop? What's the next crisis? What's the next black swan? Why aren't you worried about? And that's really been uh, consistent since since the financial crisis. And I think that's one of the most remarkable things about this bull market is how distrusted it's been from the get-go. And do you think people then filter what's going on politically or what's going on culturally and then they apply it to markets or are they worried about markets and then they apply it to politics? Or are people just, in your experience, 
kind of worried about everything chronically these days? I, I think it's probably worried about everything chronically, but if I were to pick up the two first choices you gave me, I think it's it's concern about kind of the macro environment, and then they apply it to uh, politics, although I think some people would say it's the uh, it's the opposite. Um, but I think mostly it's just muscle memory, not only of the severity of this most recent financial crisis, but the fact that it came within a decade of the tech bust. So for many investors, within a 10-year period of time, they had two epic bear markets and um, wasn't really a financial crisis in the case, it was a valuation crisis in the case of the first one. But, you know, at the bottom in 09, you had a 10-year look-back return on the S&P of negative 3.5%. You, you have to go all the way back to the Depression to uh, get a, a loss over a decade-long period of time uh, to that degree. And I think that that has just stuck in people's craw. And I think we really did change the mindset, maybe even of a generation of investors, not all that different than what happened coming out of the, the Great Depression. And I think people are just very on guard. They don't they don't want to get caught again in the next one, whatever that is, whenever it is. So they're very, uh, they seem, to, they, they think they're attuned to bubbles building, um, you know, crises brewing. And unfortunately for a lot of investors, it means they've they've missed a good part of this ride. It's a good point of between the collapse of markets before 9-11 and then through 2002, cratering in October of 2002, and then again beginning to collapse in 2008 into 2009. A lot of people have said it is kind of like that Great Depression generation from 1929 to whenever that it was well into really the 50s. You might even argue it took decades, you know, well into the 80s before people actually treated markets with anything resembling sanguinity. Which uh, doesn't doesn't prevent a secular bull market from happening because you had one coming out of World War II until the mid to late 60s. Um, yet you didn't have, we didn't have the same kind of measures of sentiment that we do now. So perhaps it wasn't as easy to track the mindset of investors back then. But um, but I think that mindset uh, was probably there and, and maybe was one of the underpinnings for what became a secular bull market. And I think the same thing happened in uh, 1982 when we started that big 18-year secular bull market. If you think about just how dour everybody felt uh, living through the uh, the 70s and the early 80s with hyperinflation and double-digit interest rates. Um, I think, you know, there are some there are some parallels. The only thing that seems clear is that a bond bull market began in 1982 or 1983. And if you looked at a chart of that, yields were 12%-ish on the 10-year note and then have come down almost consistently for the past 34 years. But in terms of equities, you know, yeah, it's an incredible mar bull market if you invested everything you had in late March of 2009. But if you invested everything you had in late March of 2000, it's not been a bull market at all. How do you come out of that, and where do you what do you tell people? Am I wrong about that? I think I think that what began in March of '09 was the beginning of a secular bull market. Um, and I know that the definitions are a bit fuzzy. There's not some precise definition of what defines them on a year-to-year -year basis in Investopedia or anything. It's, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll use the, the line I saw in a Ned Davis report a couple of years ago. Um, it's, a, it's a secular bull market because it passes the duck test. Um, you know, it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And what, what tends to mark secular bull markets when you look back at their, at their onset 
is are the conditions that existed at the beginning, and then also the characteristics that they display on an ongoing basis. But mostly it's a function of what was going on when each of them began. And the three common threads, characteristics that were in play at the 1920, the beginning of that secular bull market, which ended, of course, at the crash of 29, the one from the 40s to the 60s, and then the one from the early 80s until the peak in 2000, were three sort of secular extremes. One, a secular low in valuations, which some people try to argue that was not the case in 2009. But I would argue you have to have an inflation and interest rate filter when looking at valuations. You can't just look at them in a vacuum. So I think the fact that we we got to just under sort of, you know, 10 times didn't happen until 2010 based on how the earnings cycles move, but sufficiently low that I think you could argue it was a secular low in valuations. Interestingly, a secular high um, in the unemployment rate. Um, that happens because it's the most lagging of economic indicators, so it tends to be at, a, at its extreme worst at the point the market tends to find its bottom. And then an extreme in investor pessimism, which I think clearly you could call uh, in, uh, in early 2009. And then the pattern since then has obviously been more consistent strength than weakness, generally an uptrending market, not without some bumps along the way. We've had 10, 5 to 19% corrections um, along the way. Uh, so I, I think this is a this is a new um, secular uh, bull market. So uh, it doesn't erase what happened from 2000, but I think 2000 to 2009 was the secular bear market. It just was not a super long one. We have this statistically very low headline unemployment rate, and you can argue about all the other various measures of unemployment, which are certainly higher, but they've all been trending down. And yet you have very little evidence of people earning more wage growth. Right. And this is a, an unexpected situation. So one side might say, well, there's just been a lag. It's been a low, slow recovery. And so wages will eventually – you're going to start to see wages pick up because unemployment is so low. But people have been saying that for several years now and that just hasn't manifest. And, of course, it's always possible. You could just say just wait. Just wait is the best answer to any problem because you can't really <laughs> falsify it, right? So where do you, what, what do you think is going on here? Is it a just wait? I think it's a combination of secular forces uh, that aren't going away anytime soon, cyclical forces that I think will improve, and then maybe just some some math problems. So the the secular forces are that we are we're in a very different economy right now and the 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 skills that many workers have are not the skills that many employers want so i think the skills mismatch is a huge problem and that's more secular than cyclical or maybe it's in between the two um i.e you know there are there are solutions to that problem but it's like turning an ocean liner not a speedboat so it's going to take a while for for that problem to uh, to heal and for us to kind of retrain and reeducate it and and shift that part of the cycle um then there is the the function of of greater disability benefits and decisions that have been made that it's not really worth given fairly low wage growth um, I might as well, you know, not work and, and take advantage of some of these disability benefits. I don't think that's a big part of it, but that's a component of it. Um, the mismeasurement problem, you can look simply, if you look at, at a multi-month smoothed average of average hourly earnings as opposed to just the volatility that comes by looking month to month, you'll see an interesting thing uh, happen in 
most of 2009. Um, it showed that average hourly earnings were actually going sharply up during the Great Recession, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense if we're uh, if we if we think we have an intelligent mind in analyzing what was going on at the time. But average hourly earnings is a very simple average, and what was happening during the the worst phase of the Great Recession, when we had what seven, eight, nine hundred thousand payroll jobs lost on a month over month, you know, month after month after month basis. The, the majority, or at least a big, decent bulk of those job losses were concentrated in jobs that were on the lower end of the wage spectrum. And as a result, if you've got a bunch of numbers you're taking an average of and you lop out a bunch of the lower numbers, it boosts the average. The opposite has actually been in play for much of the last several years. As we've shifted from multiple hundred thousand of jobs lost on a monthly basis to now a couple hundred thousand jobs gained on a monthly basis, especially now with a big um, component of the job growth is concentrated, fortunately, for the younger people in that 25 to 34-year-old millennial age bracket. That's where job gains are, are strongest right now. Well, by nature of their age, they tend to be on the lower end of the wage spectrum. So when you're adding a bunch of numbers into a big average that are on the lower end of the spectrum, it's going to weight down the average, which is why I think when you look, and certainly why the Fed does, when you look at measures of wages, you've got to look at alternative measures. And the one that has gained most traction, probably rightly so in my opinion, is the Atlanta Fed's wage tracker. And what I like about it is it, when I describe it to people, I always say it's 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 a similar concept to what retailers do with same-store sales. So you don't want to look at a retailer and look at growth in sales if you're looking at if you're including a bunch of new store openings, it's going to bias it up. And so instead, same store sales looks at sales of stores that have been open the full 12-month period. Well, that's what the wage tracker does. It looks at people who have been in jobs for the full 12-month measurement period. So it ends up being more of a median measure of wage growth. And that's not booming, but versus the 2.5% wage growth seen in average hourly earnings, it's 3.5% by the wage tracker. And I think that's a more accurate representation of what we're seeing. So still not robust by any means, but I think the measurement problem is one that doesn't get enough attention. It seems like we've spent most of our collective lives focusing on output, on wage growth as a sign of a healthy system, but that we don't do a very good job integrating the cost part of it. You know, so there are cost of living, obviously, calculations that various government and private people do. Do you think we could do better trying to marry those two, meaning flat wage growth and flat market returns are really bad in high inflation, but they would presumably be not so bad with zero inflation, right? So is there anybody doing this, or do you try to maybe on the investing side at least point out the difference between very high returns in a very high inflation environment kind of have the same net effect as lower returns in a low inflation environment? Sure. You you know, you can attempt to explain the difference between things that are nominal and things that are real and the effect that inflation um, has and, and how inflation is, is calculated uh, and everything from hedonic adjustments to the productivity angle, which, you know, I've written about, you've written about, I know. Um, but the problem is, I think, um, people living their lives uh, tend to see things a, a bit more black and white and tend to see things and live things in nominal terms, not in real terms. 
Yeah, I mean, it's that old like joke of you always remember your your highest income and your lowest cost. So your grandparents <laughs> saying, ah, I remember that one candy bar was 15 cents. And you're like, yeah, do you remember when your income was $750 right. a year? <laughs> right. But no, people don't function no. that way. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, how does this change? Does it just change like over time things start doing better and then people start worrying less? Or are we mired in some sort of weird funk that precludes us from actually appreciating what's going on? That, I, you know, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I do wonder whether we truly have changed the psyche of a generation and that um, we're not going to, to change that back. But then it, you know, begs the follow-up question, well, what about the younger generation, which which clearly has come into this world without the kind of optimism that maybe the boomers did when they were younger and there was that uh, maybe assumption even that they were going to do better than their parents did and we were going to follow that persistent path that we've always been on of, of each generation doing better than the next. And I think uh, we have also, I think, soured uh, the younger generation, but I think there's too much... Um, generalization being made on kind of the younger generation. It's certainly my, my great hope having, having, you know, a 17 year old and a 20 year old that, that they end up finding great success and happiness. And, um, but I do think that the, the, the psyche change is, is kind of down the age spectrum too. And I don't, I don't know if that ever changes. I don't know if we just now have a, a more, you know, pallid complexion, (laughs) than we've had in the past, that, that this inherent optimism that, that as Americans we've always had, and I think we should continue to have, is, has, been, has been forever squashed. I hope that's not the case, but I'm not sure that there are any easy fixes uh, to it. Certainly, uh, eight years of an economic expansion, albeit a, a fairly anemic one, has, has not helped. Such a good point. I mean, I think the, the optimism deficit in American life is... Notable, and when you travel to places like China or India, which have their own massive struggles, you know it's weird to be struck by the feeling at times there that you imagine Europeans had when they came to the United States in the 1890s to the turn of the century, mm-hmm. which were really difficult times in the United sure. States. I mean, these were not picnic moments in American history, but Europeans constantly came back and said, "Oh my God, the Americans are so—they think they can do everything." Um, 
I wonder from the vantage point of Schwab, so it's true that millennials are both skeptical, particularly about, you know, markets and finance, but they're also beginning to embrace these various internet and robo solutions. And, you know, Schwab has tried to address that. And I'm not, not trying to be a commercial for Schwab. I'm just saying it's, it's you know, it, it, you're trying to come up with solutions to that where young people are saying, right. look, I want to be in markets. I just don't necessarily want to be in markets the way my parents were in markets. Right. I'd rather it be through Google if Google did it, which right. they don't. I, I want it to be tech-driven and efficient and low-cost and, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, and we 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 are we 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 jumped in to to fill that need much as many others did and I think given our 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 size and scope um, gave us uh, a decent advantage and without you, doing a commercial for my own firm. Are you, are you finding that there's resonance to that? I mean, is it a, is it a if you build it, it will come, or is it really like if you went to your twenty year old hypothetically? It was is that kind of where they're going? I think it's both. I think we were serving a need, but I think now that we have it, uh, as as do others, um, it is actually not only appealing for uh, the younger generation of investors. We're finding it quite appealing up the age spectrum, out the out the uh, risk spectrum, even for advisors that are uh, managing money on behalf of, of clients. We you know we 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 now have a, a solution for advisors. Um, and uh, I think that this is not just the way young people are shifting, but I think a big chunk of investors in general um, want to um, have that technological angle, the low-cost um, angle, the um, uh, more automated rebalancing. Uh, you know, one of the things that we have always uh, highlighted is the power of rebalancing, which um, you know, when you're when you're managing your own uh, money and you're making allocation decisions and diversification decisions on your own, um, oftentimes emotions get in the way. And what I always say about rebalancing is, as boring a topic it is maybe to talk about, and you're not going to get, you know, a CNBC to to want to do a four minute interview on on the merits of rebalancing because it's a boring topic, I suppose. But I always say that the benefit of rebalancing is you don't have to worry about, you know, which Yahoo on your podcast or anybody else has got the right call that year on what the market is going to do, but your portfolio tells you when it's time to do something. Uh, You know, we're all taught from, you know, early ages, investing 101, that you're supposed to buy low and sell high. And oftentimes when we're left to our own devices and we let the the heart get in the way of the mind, we end up doing the complete opposite, whereas your portfolio tells you when it's time to do something. Okay, this asset class, I mean, you've structured a systematic diversified portfolio that's tied to your own risk tolerance, which is the purpose of, of, of what we call intelligent portfolios, um, that, that rebalancing is going to force you to do what we know we're supposed to, which is, is buy low and sell high. And it's often what we don't do. So I think that there's that forced discipline that many people want and are willing to admit that they probably don't have it on their own. So that's definitely one of the pluses as well as a greater, I don't know, interest, desire, willingness to have these things be technically delivered, app enhanced, you name it. How far can that go? I mean, at some point, doesn't there have to be somebody assessing what something is worth, which doesn't really happen in a passive universe? Well, yeah, I mean, you're you're assessing sort of the value of asset classes more so than specificity around the index. And, and although clearly at, at Schwab, we are big believers in not passive over active, but, but the 
but combination of both passive and active. And clearly, we believe in the idea of passive strategies and the and the value they bring to investors, given the the cost. And I think that the, the aid they've provided in further democratizing investing for the the public, which uh, you know many argue, and I think rightly so, that that Schwab was sort of at the forefront 45 years ago, and this is just further to that. But you know, I will say that oftentimes when people say, you know, what keeps you up at night? What's the the risk that we can't quite quantify yet? I can't help but think it's something associated with that, this mass rush into all things passive and exchange traded products. And, and is not that it's a ticking time bomb, but is there something maybe we're missing? Could could the next shoe that drops, the next crisis, mini or or otherwise, somehow involve that. I mean, we had it in 2010 with the flash crash um, uh, related to a lot of that. Could there be something we look back on and say, boy, it was that, you know, surge in, in algorithmically driven firms over fundamentally driven firms, and that was kind of at the root of it? Probably, but trying to say, pinpoint exactly what that, that sort of matches and, and when it happens, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> if you think about the the first iteration of like the massive democratization of markets in the 90s when the joke was you'd get into a taxi and your taxi driver would be saying, yeah. I bought AOL, what did you trade <laughs> Yahoo for, whatever it was. And that was probably excessively speculative about individual names. If you found yeah. the one name, you'd write it up a thousand percent. The flip side of that is the passive universe, which... Yes, it distinguishes between stocks and bonds or American stocks versus global stocks. But there's very little other than waiting within a basket distinguishing between Amazon and Sears. Now, any of us right. would know, you know, it's probably the case, and I'm not making this as an investing call. It is probably a better idea to invest in Amazon than Sears if that was your binary choice. Um but how does that even begin to happen in a in a passive universe? Nobody's really thinking about company A versus company B in that way. Well, except that, you know, if an index by virtue of great outperformance by certain areas that that the weights are adjusted therein and a and an exchange traded product attached to that an index is also going to have that that weight adjusted. So when you look at you know, used to, they used to be called the FANG stocks, but now you added a couple in there. So the, the only acronym I could come up with, although it's not clever or has any relevance to the, the businesses, is, you know, FANMAG, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, um, Amazon, and, and Google. Five out of the six of them are are the top five market cap names in the S&P 500. Um, Netflix is the only one that's not in the in the top there. It's like 75th or something, um, which is odd that it's in the mix, but it's a function of, of the performance. And so, you know, what that's forced on the behalf of people, who, for, for investors who have the S&P as their benchmark is, is they, you know, they, ha they have to be in them or they have really no hope of outperforming the benchmark. Um, you know, that, that'll come to an end at some point. Uh, I, I, you know, I wish I knew when. I don't. I, it doesn't seem to be imminent. But um, you know, they represent 13 or 14 percent of the S&P right now, and and they've driven a lot of the performance. So some of that concentration stuff does make me a bit nervous. But I, I often go back and think about the four-year span between Greenspan's irrational exuberance comment and the ultimate top in 2000. So, uh, and I don't think the valuation problem. 
um, and then maybe even the index concentration problem is as significant as the kind of excess we saw in 2000. So when you look ahead, particularly when you're juxtaposed to an argument of we're at the top, we're at a peak, there are all these problems, there are all these dangers. I, I've found over the past eight or nine years, when the sentiment is predominantly negative, arguments for impending implosions sound more intelligent or more credible to people than arguments to the contrary. Is that I couldn't agree more. In fact, I wrote about that maybe about a year ago, about why the bearish case sounds so much more intellectual. And I, I think that there's many reasons uh, for it. Number one, just the psyche of investors being more geared mentally toward the, the negative case. So it's confirmation bias, I think, to some degree. But I also think um, that some of it is when when somebody has a when somebody's expressing a bearish view, it's they're telling you to do something effectively. And I think sometimes when somebody's saying do something like get out, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna show my value by by saving you from impending doom, as opposed to I think the the more perceived benign of look you know we're, we're gonna be okay here. Um, there isn't really a to do with that. Um, and if you know something happens, uh, you, you, you haven't saved them um, from a, an implosion or from themselves or whatever it is, but. Um, there's no question that I think there's a, a greater connection to the negative uh, story. I, I 100% of the time, and I don't exaggerate, that I get an email from one of our financial consultants or one of our portfolio consultants, and the subject line will say something like, client read this, can you share your views? And maybe there'll be another note below it in the body of the email. You know, my client, they might say who it is, you know, 52-year-old so-and-so, just read this article in whatever the publication, really concerned about the points that are uh, made. Can you share why maybe Schwab doesn't uh, think that, that this is going to happen? And I don't even have to click on the link before, I know it is going to be some form of the world is coming to an end next Tuesday. Here are the 13 reasons why, and this is why you need to, you know, build a bunker and, and put nothing but gold in your portfolio. And um, you don't, I, I don't, I, I don't ever get the Jeremy Siegel article sent to me. What do you think about this ever? Right. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is, uh, but I think it's, it's more pronounced in this cycle than it's ever been in my 31 years in the business. Yeah, I was at an investing conference a couple of years ago, and I followed a presentation of someone urging people to invest in coconut plantations because when the global financial system collapses, there will be a need for food and there will be a need for fuel, and coconuts provide both. And so they were selling shares in... I think Northern Guiana coconut oh, plantations. Oh my gosh! And you know they had a glossy brochure, and the coconuts looked <laughs> very appetizing. And I thought, well, that is certainly one place that you could invest your money. Okay. So thank you so much, Lizanne. Um, you've been a source of uh, wisdom and insight for many, and I'm sure you will continue to be so. And maybe at some point in the next years. Thank you. Some of these views will not seem at times as counterintuitive as they currently do, but keep at it. Let's hope. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Liz Ann Saunders, one of my favorite investing gurus, market gurus, and just a brilliant, insightful person. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.